This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Wawa. Carson Chandler, you're a big Wawa fan. What is your go-to when you roll into the Wawa near your house? I tell you what, Wawa has done what a lot of other places still can't quite figure out. They got great coffee. They just have a great cup of coffee, and they got great breakfast sandwiches. So, you know, you go buy a Wawa, and, you know, you're, you're on the way to the office. It's good stuff. They got, they, got, they got breakfast locked up. Yeah, one of the reasons we're talking about Wawa is uh, we both saw some uh, interesting article this week about Wawa and uh, creating a new drive through only prototype, a drive through only prototype. And uh, if you're a traditional restaurant owner, that has got to be a problematic scenario. You think about rolling through a drive through where you could get a nice breakfast sandwich or a lunch sandwich, coffee, soda, oh, maybe uh, a loaf of bread, maybe some lip balm, maybe some lotto ticket, maybe a cigarette, whatever it may be, one-stop shopping and get what is usually some pretty good food at the same time, I think that is an existential threat uh, for the industry. It's something that we need to watch. Carson, you, you had a comment about Wawa that I thought was pretty insightful about folks there kind of stocking up for the day. Yeah, my neighborhood Wawa just kind of happens to be at the intersection uh, where, where a lot of workers kind of go. And you, you, you see what they do now, and you can only imagine what it would be like, you know, when they have the drive through you, you know, you see workers that are coming in there, and they're going to get a breakfast sandwich and a cup of coffee. They're getting a hoagie for the end of the day. You know, they're going to get a Miller Lite for the end of the day when the shift is over, and then they go home. And it's six errands, you know, that they might have made throughout the course of their day all rolled into one. If you're in the quick service folks, or if you're, you know, one of the folks on that chain errands, it absolutely is worth paying attention to and maybe even being a little worried about. Yeah, it, 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 I have seen the same thing. I really, you know, the idea of buying two meals at once that, that once would have been going to a, you know, a Wendy's or a McDonald's and you're doing all that in a Wawa is going to uh, certainly, um, if that prototype were to take off, that would uh, send shockwaves to the industry. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We and we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, delivery platforms are under the gun across the country as policymakers are significantly altering their business models by capping fees. We'll discuss how those companies have tried to change the conversation, their reputation, and their role in the industry. And states are stepping into the health and safety space that critics feel has been abandoned by the federal government and mandating significant COVID-related worker protections. Virginia has been leading the way in that area, and Christopher Lloyd from McGuire Woods Law Firm in Richmond walks us through what his state has done and why other states may follow. And the Business Roundtable continues to jump into the fray on contentious issues, putting their brands in the middle of the conversation. We'll discuss the impacts of their engagement, both positively and negatively, and the potential for blowback. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with the Legislative Scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, and as you heard at the top, I am not with my aligned public strategy partner, Franklin Coley, but my other partner in crime, Carson Chandler, answered the call from the bullpen. Mr. Coley is out on vacation this week with his family at the beach, and you've been kind enough to rejoin the pod. Thanks for thanks for coming out of early retirement. You know it, yeah. COVID world, it's been hard to get the three of us together, so it's been a two-man show, but I'm excited to be back while, uh, while Mr. Coley is on a little bit of a beach vacation. Uh, Joe, what do you think the SPF is? Franklin's kind of a pale guy. What do you think the SPF is that he has to put on out at the beach? He's probably under a sheet because, you know, he's kind of a blonde, kind of a ginger. And if he doesn't, you know, go under eight 
coatings of zinc oxide or whatever it is. He's going he's gonna to be the new mascot for Red Lobster when he gets back. But it's finally nice to see Franklin uh, taking a vacation where some innocent wildlife won't die as a process. He's at the beach like a regular normal right, person. Right. Single Franklin was hunting, right? The, you know, married and two kids Franklin is all about, you know, carting down a giant thing to the beach and tents and chairs and tables and, and, and the whole thing. So uh, I'm sure he's having a delightful time and will be listening in while uh, while whilst relaxing. One of the things Franklin won't be taking a vacation from is delivery um, on his vacation. He is a voracious user of delivery platforms, which leads us into our first topic, which is one of the other things that has happened during this last six months of this pandemic has been just an explosion of, of the home delivery piece. And we talk about this on the podcast almost every week. And the the role that the third-party delivery platforms are playing in the industry is exponentially bigger than, than it was prior to this pandemic. And Carson, as, as public affairs you know, professionals, we spent a lot of time analyzing how different companies and different entities, and you know, whether it's unions or non-governmental organizations or, again, other companies, kind of navigate uh, the public affairs space. And legislatively, we've seen, you know, every week we report on this podcast, more and more cities capping delivery fees, capping third-party delivery fees, 10, 15, 20%, some other restrictions regarding new clarity around gratuities for drivers. And we, we've, you know, I don't want to say giggled, but we've lamented, you know, the plight of the DoorDash government affairs team as they are just getting pounded uh, in city after city on these uh, caps on their business model. Conversely, it's been interesting to watch how they, from a public affairs perspective, have reacted. And they have, to their credit, been very aggressive and very creative. And they have been consistently approaching state restaurant associations for memberships in the organization. They have been partnering uh, with the Independent Restaurant Coalition on a various fronts. They have openly advocated for restaurant relief packages in Congress. They're doing a conference with the National Restaurant Association in October. So they are looking, you know, on the one hand, they're at war kind of with certain part of the industry over these fees and, you know, and providers. And then they're trying to either salve those wounds or change the conversation completely on this public affairs side of the ledger. What do you? What is your take on all that? And you know, will is DoorDash ultimately? You know, are they are they being effective? Currently, the first week of August, are they being effective in those efforts? Yeah, I, you know, this is really reflective. You know, if you kind of look out there and read some of the thought leadership pieces on COVID nineteen and the role of the CEO, this theme kind of emerges that there are these seismic shifts that are happening here, but but a lot of leadership, because they're just in the bunker right now, you know, they don't have the bandwidth to kind of look above the bunker and see where it's going to go. And this might be, you know, one of those instances, right? I mean, you know, the idea that, that, that DoorDash is working hard, right, to be as tight as tightly as possible uh, to these, these restaurants to get them through the current crisis. But ultimately, DoorDash may end up being a bigger competitor down the road. And so a lot of what these restaurants do, you know, to stay alive during the pandemic, maybe create bigger challenges down the road. I think that's, that's kind of the, the, the reason for all of this. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think there's, you know, I'm not saying that's a universally accepted tenant or anything, but there are a number of, there are a number of voices in the industry that are fearful that DoorDash 
the, the role they're playing in the end of the of the process, the delivery part of the process is for now. And that ultimately their intent is to go upstream and become potentially a provider. Let me give you a case in point. You think about Darden restaurants, my, my alma mater, they have been reluctant to jump into this space. And one of the reasons is the data. Who owns that data, right? And if DoorDash and the other, and we're kind of picking on DoorDash, to their credit, because they are doing a lot of out front stuff, so this is very notable. You know, if, if they are able to control that data and understand consumers and their eating habits and their eating timetables, and they know that the Smith family every Tuesday night is getting tacos, you know, eventually they may say, hey, maybe we just hire our own chef and get the taco business ourselves and, and cut out this restaurant middleman. Once they have all those connections with that customer base, once they have that data, they may be bypassing the traditional restaurant. I'm not saying it is. I am not an expert in the, you know, food delivery space. That's not my thing. But there are there are voices out there that are concerned about that and that these partnerships and this outreach, while it's, you know, trying to diffuse some of these fracases in city councils now, it may be trying to change the channel a little bit and change people's uh, uh, attention while they're over here kind of building their own infrastructure. What do you think about that? Is that just super paranoid or is there, is there merit to that or both? <laughs> I mean, just because it, just because it sounds like you're paranoid doesn't necessarily mean that it's right now. I mean, you know, if you control the data and you control the customer experience, right, the face-to-face customer experience, then, you know, then, then, then you ultimately have a lot of control. And so I don't think it's something that happens tomorrow, but I think that all of the delivery platforms, right, I mean, that is the threat, right? These restaurants are giving up a heck of a lot of control in order to live through today, and they're giving up a lot of control, you know, tomorrow. The other thing, even if it is, right, even if even if Grubhub or DoorDash or Uber Eats doesn't get into the restaurant business, they certainly at a date in the future have the ability to pick winners and losers, you know, based on a lot of different factors and their relationships with those brands and stuff like that. And so so that gives them, you know, every day that they are a stronger partner, every day that they have more kind of control of that transaction, you know, the, the more the more influence they can wield in the industry. That's a really interesting point. And right now, you, you kind of tangential but related, you know, you saw last week in Congress, you know, some of the most high profile CEO hearings from big tech kind of reminded me of big tobacco when they had to go testify in front of Capitol Hill. And basically the premise is they're capturing so much data that they're able to manipulate buying buying habits and capturing more and more of the market. And you know, DoorDash, you know, the DoorDashers of the world are a long way from that, but in the modern world, it's not completely out of sight. So that's a, that's an excellent point too. It's a double-edged sword, especially for independent operators. That may be for now and for the foreseeable future, their lifeline, and yet they're losing, you know, more and more control of their business. They're losing their profitability and it's kind of a damn if you do, damn if you don't thing. But again, right. going back to where we started, I think it has been interesting and very creative of DoorDash, so I'm, I'm legitimately saying, you know, kudos that they have been able to enter into these other. While they may be lobbying hard against these feed caps and that part of the wheel, the other parts of the public affairs wheel, whether it's their ally development, their third-party stakeholder engagement, their industry networking, they're doing a really good job in that space to try to a alleviate some of their losses in the short term and kind of change the conversation in the long term, which is classic public affairs. Yeah. Well, the other thing I'd say too, right, this dynamic, COVID didn't cause it, right? All these restaurants were having to kind of deal with this dynamic 
over a much longer horizon, right? Do we get into ghost kitchens? Do we do our own delivery? Do we do a third party? But they had a long time to figure it out. COVID-19 just put it on a warp speed. And, and that's, I think, the deal. And I think if you were, you were sitting in the chair at Grubhub or DoorDash or Uber Eats, I mean, you can see the opportunity here, you know? And, and I think that's why you see all of the work that they're doing in terms of partnerships and promotion and out there, you know, with national advertising blitz and all that. I mean, you can see the opportunity. If you were in that chair, you would, you'd see the opportunity. I think it's a fascinating uh, emerging policy area that we'll be talking about for, for the next couple of years for sure and kind of watching some of these companies in action. So we'll be revisiting this topic, uh, certainly uh, not only from a kind of a legislative update perspective, but a broader public affairs emerging modern economy of the industry perspective as well. And so we will, we will keep tabs on this conversation going forward. So Carson, as you know, we've talked many times on this podcast about this issue in Virginia where the state of Virginia and the governor, uh, kind of by executive order and some regulations, really jumped into the workplace safety space. And, you know, basically, like we've been talking about, a lot of states and a lot of companies, you know, are, are looking at gaps in what's happening federally, whether it's paid leave gaps in the CARES Act, or whether it's, you know, health and safety. OSHA has been getting a, a bunch of grief for not being aggressive enough, and states have had to jump into the fray. And we talked about Virginia kind of leading that effort uh, in the workplace safety space. So as that process played out, uh, you may remember that about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, we had Christopher Lloyd from the McGuire Woods firm in Virginia come join us and set us straight post-election in Virginia about what was going to happen. And Chris, you were right on just about everything you said. And so uh, you've been kind enough to come back to the show. So we welcome back Christopher Lloyd, McGuire Woods, Richmond, Virginia. Chris, you're the uh, Senior Vice President, Director of Infrastructure and Economic Development at McGuire Woods and a longtime legislative hand and political hand down there. First of all, thanks. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate you coming back. Thanks, Joe. Really is a pleasure to be with you all today. Thank you. So, Chris, you know, as, as we talked about, walk us through kind of in the beginning what Virginia set out to do, what triggered it. And, you know, you think about these kind of active regulatory efforts like this, you think normally of, of Andrew Cuomo in New York. You think of Gavin Newsom in um, California maybe even, you know, New Jersey and Connecticut, places like that. You don't think of Virginia as that type of place. What, what did the governor do? What did the state do and, and why? Can you tee it up for us? Sure. Uh, and I think it's helpful, Joe, to, to begin with a little bit of understanding of the kind of place where Virginia is coming from. And you're right. Virginia has, from our workplace safety history in Virginia, Virginia has its own state plan. In other words, Virginia made the decision many decades ago that instead of having OSHA do enforcement for workplace safety in the state, that we would empower through uh, our Department of Labor and Industry, uh, we would have our own state plan and we would do enforcement. Uh, and the philosophy, regardless of whether it's been a Republican governor or a Democratic governor, has always been one of having the Department of Labor and Industry working with industry towards compliance and in a cooperative, collaborative way. And so what we've got going on with these new standards, I think there's fear in the business community is it's a deviation from that. Instead of working together towards collaboration and cooperation on compliance, I think there are those who fear that with a, with a strict standard with in a very rapidly evolving situation that we're creating a gotcha situation. What led to this 
a change in Virginia. Some of it, Joe, is what you outlined, and that is that there have been concerns about the federal government not being active enough with workplace safety issues in light of the COVID crisis. But where it really gathered momentum was starting in April, where, you know, a few weeks into the COVID crisis, you were seeing some outbreaks on, particularly on Virginia's eastern shore, Delaware, Maryland, the whole poultry producing area. Some of that was attributable to the poultry plants themselves, some of it to the congregate housing situations out there. And that resulted in a letter coming to the governor from the Legal Aid Justice Center, the Virginia Organizing Project, and a group calling itself Community Solidarity with the Poultry Workers that came to the governor uh, demanding that Virginia adopt its own workplace standard, separate and apart from the, the standards that already existed and separate and apart from anything that the CDC or OSHA would require. And that group of people really is the one that got the ball rolling uh, based on the situation out on the Eastern Shore. Well, that's that's interesting. And, and because I'm from, I'm actually from Maryland and uh, originally, and, you know, very familiar with the Eastern Shore and the, and the poultry industry. And we're, we've seen that exact kind of scenario maybe with pork, maybe with beef. We've seen in North Carolina, we've seen in, in Arkansas that same. So it's interesting that it was kind of grassroots led and the, the governor jumped into into the fray, for, you know, for lack of a better term. Do you, you know, as a general rule, I mean, how, it's an odd question, but how political was that? We've seen a lot of governors that, you know, and I won't name names, you know, but we you know kind of taking some, some zest and being contrarian to whatever the president's saying or CDC or whatever it may be. You know, was, and your governor is not a, a grandstander. I suspect most people across the country don't, you know, aren't familiar with your governor. Of course, your one term only doesn't allow people outside the, the Dominion to uh, to get to know him very well. But you know, he's not a grandstander. You know, how political do you think this was? And is there more of this kind of stuff to come? Right. I think there was some politics to it, as there is with everything in this world we live in. But I think also the organizers behind this effort that originated on the Eastern Shore uh, really influenced the, the the media. And they're the ones that carried this narrative. Back in the, the early days of the COVID pandemic in Virginia, we would have a daily press conference. And every day there was a several reporters would bring up this situation and ask the governor, they specifically say, you know, we keep hearing from people who are scared to go to work, that they feel that the state and the federal government aren't doing enough to protect them. What are you going to do? They feel like they need unemployment. They feel like they need other, uh, they need other protections. They need PPE. And so there is this constant beating on the governor by several in the press and in the media that just kept pushing and pushing and pushing on this issue. And initially, you heard the governor say, well, uh, governor and his staff say, well, you know, if you You've got an issue. You're a worker. You should bring it up with management, and you know we're going to continue to follow the, the rules as they are. But as the media and, and the other advocate community members in the advocate community kept pushing this issue, that's when it really started to take a life of its own. And remember, the other thing is, you noticed I mentioned the Virginia Organizing Project as one of the, the advocate groups that were involved with this. Remember, Virginia is the northernmost right to work state in the country, and rolling back Virginia's right to work statute was a major priority in the 2020 General Assembly session. It ultimately did not pass, but it came close, and it required a great deal of effort from the hospitality community, the, the broader business community, to defeat that. And so, you know, there, there is very much a union organizing angle 
to a lot of this. And, and I think that pressure, the media pressure, is what brought about, hey, why don't we do something with creating our own state standard in Virginia? That's such a great point, Chris. I, I, you know, I knew Virginia was a right-to-work state, but I, I hadn't put the pieces together that was the northernmost uh, right-to-work state. So that is pretty interesting. We've been watching the political dynamic in Virginia unfold. Again, I'm from I'm from that neck of the woods, so I you know you know paying attention to it all my life. But uh, it's been really interesting to watch the blueing of that state. Uh, they, they go from kind of a purplish red state to a pure purple state to kind of a, a a blue wave state. And you have off your elections, you and four other states are on a, on a different kind of odd year cycle, and you had elections in 2019 and so forth. What do you see happening in 2020 here in terms of, do you see the blue trend continuing in Virginia? Do you see uh, the president, you know, making progress in Virginia? How do you see that playing out? Right. I think it's very obvious. If you look at all the polls, the president's incredibly unpopular in Virginia. And I think that the reaction to the president has shaped our legislative races in Virginia. I don't think Virginia is as blue uh, as our General Assembly may now be, Virginia is still very much a purple state. And but we've got we've gotten a, a legislature which is in, increasingly tilted progressively, probably a little bit more so than the Virginia electorate really is. And that's very much a reflection of the unpopularity of the president in the the state. In Virginia, we went for Clinton. We went for Obama both times. And if you look at the wave that hit our legislature first in 2017, then in 2019, which gave the Democrats ultimate control of both uh, the House and the Senate, it's very much a reflection on the president's unpopularity uh, in the state. I think that will continue for, for a little bit of time. And it's unfortunately very much tied to that. And so I think you are getting this reaction to that unpopularity, which is pulling Virginia away from some of the beliefs and shared values we've all had in the past, some of which uh, Virginia needed to, to make some important changes. Uh, we were, people have referred to Virginia as a political museum piece. There were areas of change that absolutely need, needed to happen and continue need to happen. But I think where we're headed uh, is a little bit more left than where the Virginia electorate really is. That's really uh, insightful. And I remember the pivotal role, uh, especially in the, the legislative elections you were referring to, the, the kind of the Richmond suburbs, kind of where you are, and a lot of those races, you know, in that ring around Richmond kind of being very, very important in terms of legislative control, I think of the Senate at least, um, and maybe, maybe the House as well. But it, it was just an interesting, fascinating process to watch. You have a governor's race next year uh, in 2021. Uh, if you were going to go to Vegas and, and put the kids' college funds on the line. Do you have any likely, I'll give you even two, two likely candidates that you might think may be the next governor of Virginia? Yeah, the Democratic field is getting very crowded very fast. Uh, you have former governor, remember, while Virginia is a one-term governor state, you can sit out a term and come back. So Terry McAuliffe is actively raising money uh, and is planning to run. You've got uh, several members of the legislature, uh, Senator McClellan, uh, among them, uh, the Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax. It may remain to be seen what the Attorney General Mark Herring is going to do, whether he will run for governor. So you've got a very, very crowded Democratic field. Several uh, other members of the House that have announced their intention to run for, for governor or the down ticket races. So it's a very crowded Democratic field. The Republican field is virtually empty. With the exception of yesterday, uh, our former Speaker of the House, Kirk Cox, expressed interest in potentially running as a Republican uh, in 2021. He said he would delay his decision until after we get through this November's election. Uh, but someone who I think could possibly unify the Republican Party, uh, and a lot's going to depend on what happens in the 2020 election in Virginia, 
not only in Virginia but nationally, uh, of whether a Republican can pull it together. But uh, that might create some field in the Republican Party. But right now, it's the Democrats have a lot of people that they're fielding right now and would be the odds-on favorite for the time being. Gotcha. So I, I appreciate that analysis. So let me let me tie one last question. We'll tie this up in a bow and kind of go back a little bit just for, for the audience's sake. You know, I asked you a question. This is going back to the health and safety actions of the of the state in terms of requiring masks, PPE, all that, all that good stuff. You know, do you do you see if you're an operator, if if you're Chris Lloyd and you're you're running uh, the family bar and grill in Charlottesville or wherever it may be, do you feel like the environment couple of years is going to get more regulatory, more restrictive? There's going to be a lot more action in this space, or will kind of the old business friendly traditional detente in Virginia that we've come to know kind of reemerge. Where, where do you see the next two or three or four years going if you were Chris Lloyd, business owner of a, of a family bar and grill in Charlottesville? Right. Where, where I, I think you see the fear in the business community is that this is not the end, is that you've already gotten, you've, you've had the minimum wage increase uh, happen in Virginia, which of course got delayed a few months because of the COVID crisis, but it will kick in next year. You now have this. You have the, the continuing specter of the elimination of right to work in Virginia. There's the concern that this regulation with regards to workplace safety, and let me be clear, employers and employees want a safe uh, workplace. And reasonable precautions based on science and data that are practical should be followed. So I'm not attacking the idea of, oh, a safe workplace and the government playing a role in that. I want to be crystal clear in that. I think the concern that, from the, that you're hearing from the business community uh, and the hospitality community is, you're right, that this careful balance which we've had in Virginia between trying to enforce the laws and having uh, rules that, that protect workers and keep safe workforces, when does it tip into a kind of a gotcha or a lit litigious structure? And, and I think that the great fear that a lot of people have is that the, these new workplace rules are while some of them may be necessary and some of them may be important, is that it really opens the door for what we think is the next battle, and that is presumption. Uh, and that is that if someone gets COVID, no matter what, it is automatically tied to the workplace. If they got it at their church, if they got it by vacationing at the beach or whatever, is that the General Assembly's next action will say that if you are diagnosed with COVID, it is automatically presumed for workers' compensation that you got it at work. And there, that, that battle on presumption has been being chipped away at, chipped away at, chipped away at in Virginia for a number of years. Virginia has always had uh, low unemployment, uh, low um, workers' compensation rates. Uh, but if you start presuming that any incident or any disease is linked to the workplace, that's going to increase costs. You add to that the cost of, you know, replenishing the unemployment insurance fund within the state. You add to that the potential costs that come with uh, more organizing and unionization activities, other compliance activities. That's where you get a lot that bar owner in Charlottesville very worried about, you know, when does it get the point that it, it may no longer makes sense for me to keep them in business? Well, that's that's good counsel. That's good insight. And that's, you know, it's kind of managing expectations for operators on the ground. So we appreciate that. And yeah, the, the presumption of basically guilty until proven innocent is, a, is certainly a, a fundamental pivot on how we've approached these things uh, in the past. But um, Chris, really appreciate you taking the time, um, you know, for the purpose of the audience. You know, Chris has done 
significant work in in our space, quote unquote, our space, and has uh, from time to time helped uh, the Virginia Hospitality and Tourism Association, helped the National Restaurant Association on various projects. Uh, so he knows the industry well. I think he's got a good understanding of what operators are facing uh, out there every day. And so, Chris, we, we appreciate you coming on on the pod. And we appreciate the, the, the good work you're doing in Richmond. And hopefully we can connect uh, soon again when the next important Virginia issue pops up. I look forward to it. Thank you, Joe. So, Carson, as you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast over the last couple of years about, you know, corporate activism and CEO leadership and expectations, primarily the kind of growing expectations, it seems, in popular culture among you know, employees and customers and, you know, understanding shopping at brands that they associate with or working for companies that share their values. We talked ad nauseum about that. And, you know, kind of tangential to that, we've also talked a lot about CEOs kind of getting much more active in the space, probably as a result of what I just said prior to that. Um, We talked about the Business Roundtable, which is you know, traditionally been a rather staid, you know, organization of uh, the leading CEOs in the country. But over the last couple of years, become more and more vocal, more and more active. And in the last couple of months, we've seen the, the business roundtable, those 300 CEOs uh, sign letters to Congress, you know, in the wake of the, the George Floyd crimes, you know, in terms of we've seen those CEOs in the wake of, of George Floyd calling on Congress for major, major police, national police reform. We've seen them uh, just two or three weeks ago call on Congress for a national mask mandate. This week, they've called on Congress to essentially get your butts in gear and get this corona package, this relief package passed, right? Now, this is a role, Carson, as you well know, being a you know, Capitol Hill veteran and veteran of working for the United States Senator, you've worked for a mayor, you know, this is the role that tra- trade associations traditionally play. CEOs and, and corporate leaders use the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or the National Restaurant Association or the National Retail Federation to have those conversations for them. And these days, it seems like CEOs are kind of bypassing that process and really putting their name and their brand on these policy you know, initiatives or directives or conversations. Why do you see that happening? Yeah, it, you know, it, it, it's fascinating. It's almost kind of like is it the chicken or the egg. You know, was this was this an evolution that COVID sped up, or is this all because of COVID? You know, I, I kind of got two, two thoughts. You know, the first is the, the changing dynamics of the the audiences out there, the public. Right? Is is there now an expectation that if you're a CEO, if you're a brand that is a big national brand, that you just have to have a position on an issue, whether it's controversial, whether it's widespread, if it's a national issue? You got to have a position. That's that's the job of American companies these days. And the other kind of thought I have is, who is the real audience, right? Having kind of been in those offices, and you know, you get letters from CEOs or a group of companies. They don't necessarily tend to move the needle, right? There's not always not a lot of teeth behind it, even if it's coming from a trade association, if it's coming from a group of a group of CEOs. So, who is the real audience? right? Is it customers? Is it potential customers? Is it competitors? You know, what's the ultimate goal in doing this and in becoming a more out there kind of industry leader, brand leader? Yeah. And I, I, I think you're, you're asking the right question to me. It's, there's a couple audiences. A, you know, if they have eyes toward other audiences outside of the direct recipient of those letters, i.e. congressional leaders, you know, you would hope it would be about their employees and, and inside their business. But it's the whole media cultural, you know, 
thing in the country that everybody's watching and everyone's judging everything you do. And these right. CEOs are just, you know, get roasted if they do this or they don't do that. Whatever they do or don't do, it seems like the judgment machine is ready to pounce, right? And I think it's it's interesting that, you know, we see this divide. I, I You know, why I think this issue is, is worth talking about is we're starting to see this divide among corporate leadership. We say CEO class as a, you know, as a, as a kind of placeholder, but among corporate leadership that there's this group on one side that is regularly engaging with their own name, their own brand. And it's getting further from the group that is not. And I'm not judging what side anybody should be on. Man, I am, I'm Switzerland on that. There are a hundred great reasons to do it, a hundred great reasons not to do it. I'm not, but all I'm saying is that gulf continues to get wider. And it seems that we're going to get to a point where not being engaged is going to be harder to explain to those constituencies than being engaged, even if you're on the wrong side, quote unquote, of whatever issue that is. And I just see that as a developing you know, kind of expectation over the next 10 years that no business is going to be too small, no no industry too niche not to be pulled into these either conversations and or fights. Right. Here, here's, a, here's a question for you, Joe. You know, I, I get it, right? Specific to our industry, the restaurant industry we're talking about, right? You can see why CEOs feel the need to be out there on some of these issues. Mask wearing is just, it's easy, it's obvious for, for the customers, right? But do you think there is an increasing kind of reason set for hiring and being competitive for hiring, right? You know, we have a millennial class that is getting into entry-level employment, and their kind of worldview is a little bit different, you know? And, you know, whereas 10, 15 years ago, this wouldn't have mattered. It doesn't, doesn't matter now. You know, when when you're looking to get a teenager or somebody in their 20s to to work for you? I think, well, the easy answer is certainly before the pandemic, yes, right? We were, what were our unemployment rates prior to the pandemic? Three, four percent, these ridiculously low unemployment rates. Companies were dying for employees. Uh, the, the wages were were rising faster than you know legislatures could could raise them. Just the marketplace to get decent help, uh, the cost of training and retaining that help. So that was the conversation we were having prior to the pandemic. And so yes, I think that was a bigger part of it. Right now we've got fewer jobs in the restaurant industry and in the hotel industry than we had prior to the pandemic. We still have restaurants all over the country that are not operating at full capacity that are limping along. Uh, we have scads of unemployment, so maybe maybe not as much. But I think corporate, especially corporate leaders, know that the ship will eventually be righted. Uh, we'll find our new normal. It may not look the same as the old normal. We'll find our new normal, and then those traditional pushes and pulls will come back, where they are now going to have to go compete for the type of employee that they need uh, and so forth. And so that piece of what you're talking about will once again become a bigger part of the decision making process. But I think. Like everything else, COVID has thrown a wrench in that works as well. But it's an interesting topic. And again, I don't want to spend too much time on the business roundtable per se, but it's an excellent example to watch and demonstrate traditionally CEOs that were reticent to come out of their offices and are now under the hot lights and their expectations are going to be there, whether it's investors expecting them to be or customers or employees. And it's just a, a, this a, a yet another trend line to continue watching. There's one more kind of dynamic here. I know you, you and I talked earlier about there's a piece in Yahoo Finance that kind of talks about not the dangers necessarily, but the other side of this, right? It's corporate chieftains talking a lot, but they're not necessarily talking about 
the issues that they might have the most control over in terms of pay and paid leave and some other things like that. And so is there a danger in these CEOs crossing that line, becoming more vocal about a lot of social issues, but then they're going to be expected to talk about issues that are going to directly impact their bottom line that they may not necessarily want to talk about? I think you're referring to the Bloomberg piece where Bloomberg basically put out a piece this week that in response to the latest business roundtable thing where they basically said, hey, guys, why don't you get back to running your companies and uh, turning profits and uh, let's leave the legislating to the legislature. It was basically a knuckle wrap uh, by the folks at Bloomberg saying, why don't, why don't you go, if you, you want to run for Congress, run for Congress. But if you want to run a company, go run a company. You know, and so it's an interesting pushback from an interesting place to that conversation. So it's getting ever, ever more complicated and ever more difficult to predict. But for you and I, it makes it ever more fun to talk about. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as always, we start with what's going on in the world of COVID. And Carson, I think the headline is nothing really is going on in the world of COVID because things look like they've fallen apart on Capitol Hill. That's right. At the risk of using one of your favorite phrases, uh, Mr. Kefauver, all eyes are in Washington, D.C., and there's not much going on, right? Yeah, that's it, uh, actually, that's Mr. Renzel's uh, right. conversation. But, you know, last week we had Matt Walker on from the National Restaurant Association. As folks remember, walked us meticulously through all the component parts of this bill, especially the, obviously focusing on the part most important to, to the industry. And all, all three sides are kind of hunkered in. There's, you know... Republicans versus Democrats. There's a challenge in the Republican caucus. Uh, Mitch McConnell getting his folks on board. And so uh, it appears that uh, negotiations for right now, as we speak, are at a, at a stalemate. And I think Congress is, the House is already out of Washington. And I think most senators left D.C. yesterday. So if you're dependent on those unemployment benefit checks, you're, you're in quite a pickle. And there's, there's going to be Hell to pay on one side of the ledger or another, actually electorally, uh, going forward. So hopefully, and I, you know, I, I still, I guess, naively have faith that we'll we'll get through some type of uh, impasse here. But uh, it's it's not looking good. I think the component parts are still, you know, the Democrats are very focused on extending the full six hundred dollars a week unemployment benefit through the rest of the year, and they are adamant about money's going to state localities uh, to help pay for these unbudgeted, monumental COVID-related costs. Republicans, for their part, say, hey, there's already a bunch of state money allocated for just that that hasn't been claimed yet. So let's exhaust that pile before we start allocating more. And they can't get together on the unemployment benefits. That's a real division within the, in terms of moving forward with unemployment or not moving forward at all in elections in 87 days. Uh, so it remains to be seen how this w- will play out. It's, it's pretty disappointing. You know, you and I were talking offline. They get so stuck in their, their special interests and who their donors are, they forget, you know, they're, they're supposed to be doing this for people, not for industries, not for special interest groups, not for unions, not for this group, that group, but actual people living their lives. And I think they lose sight of that sometimes. So it's disappointing. Right. They're supposed to be doing this for the country, you know, and and you look at it and you go, gosh, I can't imagine a scenario where they could possibly leave without without getting a deal. I can't possibly imagine how they could go back to their constituents. But you know what? Never underestimate political dysfunction if the last, you know, three, four years have taught us anything, right? Well, yeah. And, you know, so we'll see what happens this week and the negotiations will continue between leadership and the White House, you know, every day until they come to an agreement. Carson, switching gears and other COVID-related, there was an important 
uh, development in Nevada. They called a special session out there to review a number of kind of COVID-related emergencies, one of which is a priority for the industry and liability protection. Can you explain what Nevada did this week? Well, Joe, the, the, the legislature out there is really focused on, driven by casinos, obviously, but it impacts the whole, you know, hospitality industry, creating protections that's going to prevent lawsuits for these facilities to get them open, right? You know, there's this idea that, you know, people are coming in and, and this is a suite of protections if a restaurant, if a casino is following all the local, state, federal health mandates, you know, that they would, you know, be somewhat immune from being sued if somebody got COVID-19, you know, from a, a visit. Yeah, it's an important priority and it was a big win for, you know, some protections for the casinos, but the, the, the culinary union, big union in, in Nevada and Las Vegas in particular, was fighting for a lot of worker protections. That was part of it as well. And so there's a number of things the casinos have to do to, you know, in terms of cleanliness mandates and wiping things down. And if you're a restaurant owner, it's probably only a matter of time before the culinary union start asking, you know, for the same thing in the restaurant world. But bottom line is pretty big win in Nevada this week for the industry in terms of forwarding a reasonable conversation on liability protection. So it could be a model for other states. Carson, switching to paid leave, we've talked a lot on this podcast over the last few months about the CARES Act and all the paid leave provisions that were in it and how states and localities have jumped into the fray to kind of fill, quote unquote, gaps and loopholes. And, you know, one, one of the things with the CARES Act is once it was passed, the Labor Department then had to go promulgate rules around the paid leave pieces of it. And many Many critics said, you know, they essentially gutted through their regulatory process. Some accused them of intentionally, but essentially gutted a piece of legislation they helped craft. And so a lot of people, especially the left of center labor community, were pretty upset about that. What did Franklin's favorite attorney general do, uh, Tish James, in New York? Well, Joe, the attorney general, she sued the Labor Department. She got a favorable ruling. And right now, right, it looks like the Trump administration may or may not even appeal. I guess the question is, you know, how big of a deal is this? You know, I, I think it's a pretty big deal because, you know, again, they, they found a way, you know, if you're an employer, a lot of your people may have been exempted uh, by the rulemaking of the Trump administration. And now a lot of your people may be included. So this is a an interesting case to watch. Um, and it will be interesting to see what the Trump administration does. If they're reelected, my sense is they would probably... Uh, go forward and appeal the ruling if the statute of limitations allows them to. Uh, right now, with what's going on and election limbo, they might not even bother wasting the time and effort and money. So we'll we'll have to see that. It's uh, one to watch. Carson, uh, pivoting out to the states, one we've been watching for a long time, Colorado. I don't think there's even any state or issue we've spent more time hammering away on than Colorado paid leave. The governor has uh, made some emergency declarations in this space. The legislature has passed some legislation after a long couple, three, four years. But against that, there's been this backdrop of a potential ballot initiative uh, that may, you know, where, where the voters may decide ultimately on this themselves. And looks like some uh, some significant activity out there this week. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of energy around it. It looks like you know more than almost double the number of signatures required. And I think you know it's going to at least from from what we've been. Talking talking about, you know, a lot of the employer community, it's a pretty rich benefit. And I think there's going to be a lot of pushback and a lot of hand-wringing from the operator community because of the amount of leave and the dollars amounts associated, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fund that would offer up 
to 12 weeks of leave at 90% pay with $1,100 a week cap. And um, that's a pretty big number. There's not a cost sharing arrangement. It's, it's, it's borne by the employer and it's going to go to the voters. And, you know, Colorado is a pretty progressive state. It's still kind of tinges purple a little bit, a little bit libertarian, but most of these labor uh, friendly things that make it to the ballot, like the minimum wage did last time around, tend to pass, maybe not overwhelmingly, but so we'll be watching that one. That is going to be a, a very robust program and expensive one if it gets on the ballot. And Carson, uh, we talked about it earlier in the, the federal part with regard to the CARES Act, but we have another county uh, in California following suit. There have been so many that are kind of filling in those loopholes, and it looks like Sonoma County, and I know you're a big fan of the red, of the red grape uh, coming in the bottle form. Um, looks like Sonoma County is going to um, pass legislation to fill in those gaps as well and require companies with 500 or more employees to provide those two weeks and kind of fill in some of the kind of some of the other gaps. They've been going through this process pretty thoughtfully for a couple months. So I, I suspect by the time they come up for a vote, it'll vote. It'll be almost unanimous. So it's right. It's what, you know, the dominoes in California falling and, and what Sonoma County, the requirement is what, five employees, uh, two weeks of paid sick leave. Yeah, it's a big one. So, but again, I think, I think employers in California are already doing that in so many other jurisdictions that it's not really going to change things. Carson, switching to labor policy, another, another issue we've been following forever, the Browning-Ferris uh, joint employer standard, as people remember. This all started with the NLRB case long ago and you know started in the Obama era. And then the, uh, the Trump NLRB came in and ruled that Browning-Ferris and their independent contractors, they were not essentially joint employers. But then it got caught in litigation and members should have recused themselves because of previous legal arrangements and, and so forth. So after all, and then, you know, we saw the Labor Department pass their own joint employer standard. We've seen other agencies pass their own joint employer standard. And we've kind of come all the way back full circle to where we started, which was a case being adjudicated at the NLRB this week that reaffirmed that Browning Ferris and their their subsidiaries are not in fact joint employers. So it's kind of put a a big bow on a long running presence. So it's, it was not an unexpected outcome. It just took a long while. And I know, and again, case precedent, very important at the NLRB, not as much as Supreme Court. They do a case by case basis, but still uh, this left impact on other cases going forward. Carson, switching gears to packaging, uh, California, some interesting news out of uh, this week with regard to a potential ballot initiative. Yeah. And I think, you know, if, if there's one issue that was just kind of raging hot in the world before COVID that's kind of disappeared, it's single-use plastics. And it really has just kind of disappeared from kind of the public conversation. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily disappeared from, you know, the policy universe. And this is a perfect example, right? So this week, a judge approved a signature gathering extension to place on the November 2022 ballot a measure that would call for a penny tax on all non-recyclable and non-compostable pieces of packaging sold by restaurants and retailers. So this issue is still happening, still happening in, in California. And what we've seen with all of these single-use plastics and sustainability pieces, right, is they're very, very mobile, right? You know, one happens in one jurisdiction and it populates in the rest. And so, yes, we know our operators are fighting, you know, on this COVID front, but there are other, you know, there's still there's still the other policy pieces that pre-COVID were going on. And this is a perfect example of that. This is a big one uh, that I don't think a lot. I think I think the industry, I, I'm sure our friends in, in, in California specifically know all about this all too well. But across the country, there hasn't been a lot of conversation on this. And this is, uh, you know, this is basically, say, California going to tax their way to setting, reestablishing a recycling 
marketplace. And this thing gets on the ballot. There are no voter in California. Gonna, I mean, this thing will pass overwhelmingly in California. The other piece of it is not only does it assess a, a penny tax on every piece of plastic. So if you go into, a, let's just make up McDonald's and you're given a, a fork, knife, and spoon, you're given a styrofoam thing, there's five, six, seven different items that are getting that tax. So this could be a, you know, a, a huge revenue raiser. A uh, second piece of it is the ballot language really empowers, gives broad sweeping powers to the Department of Resources uh, out there to provide additional, you know, promulgate additional regulations around recycling. So it's a it's a big deal. The other the other piece of context that's important is all throughout the country, especially with regard to minimum wage ballot initiatives, Ohio and other places, the signature gatherers have gone to court and said, or gone to the powers that be, maybe the Secretary of State, maybe to court, and said, look, this COVID pandemic has not allowed us to collect signatures. We can't get to people. Uh, if I get too close to them, I'm, I'm, I'm violating social distancing things. Can we have more time? And time after time, place after place, the decision has been no. They have not in most of those cases. This is pretty landmark for the judge in California to say, yeah, no problem. You got plenty of time. Take all the time you need. Uh, so again, this is for the November 2022 ballot, not, not coming up in 87 days. But uh, it will be big, and I suspect it'll be, once we get through this election cycle and the dust settles, it'll be kind of all hands on deck. Uh, Carson, we're making fun of Franklin earlier on food delivery. Your favorite county in America, Clark County, Nevada, the host county of Las Vegas, where you probably will be buried one day, your favorite place. They're getting into delivery fee space. Yes, sir. I'll tell you what, there's one reason for a vaccine. It's so that we can have March Madness in Las Vegas once again. But yeah, Clark County, um, a new emergency ordinance uh, that caps fees charged by third-party delivery apps at 15%. They want their residents to be able to, to be able to get their food and not pay uh, exorbitant fees for it. So uh, when you have had a long night out at a Vegas casino uh and, and you want uh what's the what's the big chain out there in california nevada when you want your uh in and out burger in and out burger there you go when you want your in and out burger delivered to the uh to the front of your hotel they don't want you to have to pay an exorbitant fee out there so this, this is important for operators to take a look at this one because it's it's clark county it's not the city of las vegas but it's the unincorporated parts of clark county however part of the las vegas strip is actually not within the city Define proper city limits of Las Vegas. Part of the Las Vegas Strip is in Clark County. So part of the Strip will be subject to these fees and, and, and part will not. And similarly, in Evanston, Illinois, right outside of um, Chicago, the home of Northwestern University, uh, their city council passed an ordinate capping fees of 15% as well. The reason I throw this one into the mix, there have not been a lot of Chicago area jurisdictions, to my knowledge, that have uh, gotten into this space. And as you know, Carson, Grubhub is based in Chicago. Chicago yeah. yeah, so it's just interesting to watch. Uh, here's one of their neighboring towns kind of going after him a little bit. Carson, switching to alcohol, big news out of Georgia this week. In the heart of the Bible Belt, it's the wild, wild west when it comes to beer, wine, and liquor delivery. That's right. The governor signed legislation allowing beer, wine, liquor delivery from restaurants and bars, convenience stores, and grocery stores. So pretty much the entire universe of uh, consumption can now deliver. Uh, you know, you expect that in, in some of the, uh, the bluer jurisdictions around the country, but I think it's a big deal in Georgia, right? It is. You know, the Restaurant Association there did a very good job of you know, explaining how important this was 
to restaurant bottom lines and restaurants and uh, bars trying to hang on with their fingernails for dear life. And I think they were able to, you know, while that kind of that Sunday sales, Bible Belt kind of anti-alcohol coalition has been, you know, dying off over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it's still, it's still prevalent in a lot of places and George is among them. So they've done a nice job of, of kind of re- resetting that conversation and, and how important it is to keep a very important industry alive. And Carson, we've been laughing uh, internally about our little town of Sheridan, Wyoming, following up, hanging on with the big boys. And it looks like they're poised to allow home delivery in Wyoming as well. I don't know how you would do home delivery in rural, rural Wyoming or where you would get it from, but it's fun to just follow along and watch. So towns big and small, states big and small are supporting the industry. And hopefully we can keep our compliance record up to a place where states feel comfortable giving us this this authority. So very quick Carson scorecard this week. I mean, it's it's August the 7th. We've got Congress out. Most of the states are out. People are on vacation. This is the slowest time of the year for the scorecard. Yeah. I mean, and, and really, we're also about to get into the nutty season. Everything you see on TV it was yesterday and the day before, you know, 89 days into the election. The scorecard pieces are going to be out, and it's going to be two things. It's going to be COVID, and it's going to be election craziness here for the next 89 days. All right. Another, another week, another scorecard, and we'll have one for you next week. Well, Carson, another week, another pod. Um, but uh, one of the highlights of this week before we leave our audience was yesterday was one of the great days of the year for for us here at Align Public Strategies and of course for myself personally it was International IPA Day and I'm not talking about the International Publishers Association I'm not talking about the International Police Association I'm talking about National India Pale Ale Day I love a good IPA I feel like we need more alcohol-based holidays. I mean, Columbus Day and Flag Day, those are, those are great, but more, more, more alcohol-based holidays, I'm all for it. So interesting factoid on, on IPAs. This is a, a survey that was done by Goose Island Beer Company. 66% of Americans had no idea that IPA stands for India Pale Ale. Two out of three Americans had no idea what IPA stood for. And almost a third aren't familiar with them at all. Uh, and 40% of those surveyed had never tried an IPA ever. So I think that's pretty interesting. IPA sales are, are you know, doing well. I think overall beer consumption is probably is, is down. It's trending downwards. But IPAs, man, there's micro brews everywhere. And the, the market, you go into a, an average liquor or beer store and there's just walls of IPA. Carson, what's your favorite IPA? You know, I like uh, Sweetwater 420 is a good one. And then there's uh, another one from Florida, Cigar City. I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's it, those, those are probably the two that I, that I order most when I'm out and about here in our hometown of Orlando. Well, we talk about alcohol delivery a lot and uh, the, the micro beer piece of it and the IPAs are a big, big piece of it. You mentioned Sweetwater. That's kind of my favorite on tap IPA. As I said earlier, if, if, a, if, a, if a restaurant or bar has a relationship with Sweetwater, then they have a relationship with me because I, I like my, my Sweetwater IPAs. So on that note, wishing everybody a good week. Stay informed, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week. 